hear now the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men who were neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we do pray now that you would speak, speak truth from your word and speak it into our life, that we might faithfully love and live for Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. We get this great account, this story, this narrative of Luke this morning. And in fact, actually, it is the last recorded event of Paul's extended ministry in Ephesus. And perhaps you're accustomed to that saying, or maybe you've even said it yourself, that last words are lasting words. And I do hope there is much truth in that this morning for us all, that when we see these last words, that there might be, in fact, something lasting about them in our life. Luke begins in verse 21 and 22 
outlining for us that Paul plans to go north, that he wants to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and he, and he wants to go to Jerusalem. And after that, Paul says, I must see Rome. Now, we are not told why Paul wants to do that in the Acts of the Apostles. Paul, however, in his epistles make it clear, but Luke has a different purpose. The epistles, we learn that Paul has been collecting funds to help those in Jerusalem who are struggling and that several Gentile churches have joined in. Corinth had joined in initially, but but they got off track due to some problems. And yet Luke, however, wants to say that Paul must see Rome. Now you recognize, I'm sure, that Rome is the final place that Paul will land in the Acts of the Apostles. And of course, this is not because he found a good two-bedroom, two-bath Airbnb deal. It's not a vacation spot that he's seeking. It's not a tourist uh, trip for him. He's got a purpose. There is a gospel reality as to why he wants to go. He wants to take the gospel into Rome. That is the, the hub, the center, the mother city of the empire. He's got a vision. And maybe you would say it sounds like this vision of Paul's is so large. And yet in one perspective, it's not large. It's yet, it's very focused. It's single-minded. He wants to preach the gospel. Do you remember what he said to the church at Philippi? Forgetting what lies behind, but striving for this one thing that is ahead. This isn't merely the one thing that Paul wants to do in Rome. This is the one thing he wants to do with his life in Christ, and that is to preach Jesus Christ of first and greatest importance. So what happens? What happens when you preach and teach the kingdom of God? Well, the answer is simple, isn't it? There will be an outrage of opposition. And we have to ask the question is, why? Why is there such an outrage? Why is there opposition? It's because when Jesus Christ is preached as the Lord of all, which means he is Lord over all mankind and over creation, what you have are two kingdoms in conflict. You have two kingdoms at war. It is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of Satan. And so what is being stirred up is the object or objects of worship. And that's what we have this morning. You get a first-hand account spelled out in narrative form. And that is the perspective of the Bible. What is the Bible's perspective on the natural man? You know, sometimes we say or have heard it said in our culture, people say that they are generally, or people generally, are good. And it begs the question, is that your understanding and conclusion based on this account right here? At the end of the day, would you look at the general population of people and say, we're just generally a good people? When you have a man or a woman who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the result. This is the natural man. It's not that they lack in worship. It is, in fact, what they worship. We all worship and we are great worshipers. We just often worship the wrong one or the wrong thing. This riot shows us that we were made for worship, but the object of our worship matters eternally. Ephesus, as we see, worships Artemis. That is the Greek 
Or Diana, your translation might say, which would be the Roman term for the goddess. And all it is saying, it's, it's an underline, it's a, it's a fine-tuning point on what Calvin would say, that the man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols. And so this morning, what we want to do is we want to see what happens when we worship false gods versus the true and living God. And we will do so with two points. The first is controlled by godlessness. And the second is challenged by godliness. So controlled by godlessness and challenged by godliness. Let me set the stage for us when we undertake this first point of controlled by godlessness. For the last two years, Paul has been preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. And as we will see momentarily, it has, a, it has an impact. But what Luke is saying here in our text is that opposition arises and Demetrius, this silversmith, is at the center of it. And we can read in verse 23 and 24, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. This is the goddess that I spoke of last week, the temple of Artemis, or like I said earlier, Diana. It is one of the seven wonders of the world. And to give you some context of what is about to be argued here, consider what took place a few chapters earlier in Acts 17 when Paul was in Athens. You remember he is dragged to the Parthenon, to the Areopagus, this monument dedicated to Athena. And you remember those popular verses. It comes in verse 23 in chapter 17. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Not only is Paul beginning to challenge the worship of false gods, but consider where he did it. If you go to Athens, I've never been there, but I am told that it doesn't matter where you are, where you stand, you can see this monument, the, the Parthenon. It's, it's large. It's, it's huge. And yet what we're reading about this morning, that is the goddess Artemis, the temple of Artemis, is four times the size of the Parthenon. It was built on 127 columns, and each one is 60 feet high. It wasn't just large uh, in its structure. It was large, you might say, in its beauty. It was very ornate. The interior decorating of what you might say is the Michelangelo of their time. Artemis was known as the god of the hunt and of childbirth, and therefore connected to that of fertility. And the point that I'm trying to make here is you have a large, large temple. It means that this is what we're reading, what Paul is engaging in here, what Demetrius is describing here. We're not talking about some smoke, uh, small local uh, band of brothers, but arguably you're, you're looking at the largest cult competing against Christianity in all of Asia. 
And so what does Demetrius say? Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. He, he gathers the silversmith's union and he says something's really wrong here. In fact, he's going to use the word, we are in danger. Now, what is he talking about? Well, I don't remember exactly where and when, but it was a few years back. My wife and I had the privilege of going to a, a museum and, and seeing the, the Terracotta Army. And perhaps some of you have heard of it or seen it yourself. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible to see these, these clay stoned shrines, you might say, of, uh, of this army. They're hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. They're replicas. It's, it's a beauty of our history, not necessarily American history, but world history. And you can still see some of them. You can see a terracotta replica of Artemis, in fact. And you might be saying, that's not, that's not a big deal. Well, remember, Demetrius isn't making terracotta replicas. He is making shrines and replicas made out of silver, something of far greater significance, far more value. And what he is saying is, this is how we make our money. And men, other silversmiths, I don't want a pay cut. If people stop worshiping Artemis, I'm through. My, my profit is being targeted. And you can see behind it, can't you, that, that there's something about his reputation. He's almost suggesting is, well, what happens if they find out that Artemis isn't actually a god? It means that myself and we have been manipulating the people, the masses, for some time. And of course, that argument that he's using isn't going to last long. You can only use that kind of argument with other silversmiths. And so when he's talking to others, he has to he has to take a different approach. He has to broaden his argument. And so he begins there with them saying, yes, this is where our money is. This is where our wealth, this is our livelihood. This is our job. And what he's about to outline is this is what it looks like to be controlled by godliness or excuse me, godlessness. He begins with his job and then he outlines beginning in verse 26. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. There it is. It's not just my job. I'm not trying to merely keep my job. I love my wealth. But what Paul is doing isn't just about my wealth. He is attacking who I am. We're talking about Artemis. The world worships in the viewpoint of Demetrius, Artemis, and she would be deposed. Our God would be brought to nothing. And that would mean, well, who are we? It's an attack on our history, on our heritage. We're the Ephesians. We built this temple. This is what we are known for. This is our purpose. He's attacking our identity. Our life is gone. You read those verses and perhaps you thought, I need to read it again. Surely... 
That's not what it says. And what is actually Demetrius saying? You read it right. That Paul, Paul is telling people that what we make with our hands are not God's. Surely he did not say that. But the answer, of course, is that he did. Children would know that that's not true. And yet what you're witnessing is the height of foolishness, but also the depth of blindness. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 44 when he is talking about how great is our God. There is no other God like ours. And then he begins to show what it looks like when we fall into this folly of worship. This is what he says beginning in verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 44. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. He takes a tree. He cuts it in half, uses half for making breakfast, and the other half he worships. Or perhaps you're familiar with Psalm 115, the verse in the very beginning I'm sure you're familiar with when we read, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be all the glory. But you remember where the psalmist goes from there. He moves into this position of Well, what happens when we pervert that truth? What happens when we as the nation say, where is their God? What happens when we create idols? Well, he says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. Hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. You, you see what's happening. He's demonstrating the height of foolishness and the depth of blindness when we make these godless idols and are controlled by them. Now you might be saying, I hear it. I even understand the words that you're saying. I've never seen anything like that. I've never been anywhere. I've never known anyone. I've not seen another temple. I've not seen another false god being worshipped, a deity that has been constructed. You might even be saying we're too good for that. We live 
in the 21st century. We're in the West. We're not just too good for it. We're too smart to do that. We know better. And many of you know where I'm going with this. We have our gods. Maybe it isn't financial. We often talk about the God of money or sex or power or even intelligence. What about some of the lesser ones? The God of comfort, God of time. It's, it's mine. You can't have it. Don't mess with my schedule. The God of work and achievement. The God of the past. We need to go back to the glory days, the old days. Or maybe it's the God of change. We need to stay on the cutting edge. Some of you might even be saying, I'm not even sure all those are gods. Maybe you were right at times, but do you, do you see what we do? It's the same as we see throughout all the scripture. What we do is we read that God is holy, that he is, he is sovereign, he's all-knowing, he's in control, he's perfect, he's just, and we're not comfortable with a God like that. So we fashion a new one, one that is only loving, one that tolerates my sin, one that is in fact not sovereign, or not truly holy. We look for a God and fashion a God that we can all get along with, that we can all live with. That's true in the culture, but that's also true in our hearts. It's true of all of us. Coming to Christ does not mean you no longer struggle with what it means to worship godless idols. We're expert at this. Being made new, being regenerated in our heart doesn't mean that there is no still old man within. We have a constant fight, a fight for this every day that says, I want to worship the God of the Bible, not the God of this world. I was confronted recently by this when I was thinking of a funeral a few weeks back. Sometimes we use this language when we talk about believers who have, who have died and gone into glory. We, we often can say they have joined the church triumphant. And that is to say they are in heaven. They are in the, the presence of God forever and ever, eternally blessed and enjoying Him fully. And yet, there's a church on earth, and we often call them the church militant. And what a word. Because what are we saying with the church militant? We're, we're saying there's a, there's a fight, there's a, there's a war it is the actuality, it's the reality of which we live. But it begs the question then, is that actually a true description of the church at this point? Are we the church militant or the church of compromise? Are we the church vigilant or are we the church of passivity? Are we the church of truth in love not instead of, but in love? Or are we just the church of let's all get along? Demetrius is describing the natural heart of man. That we are controlled by godlessness. And you can see what follows. They erupt in anger. And they begin chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they race into the theater. They are controlled in their worship by godlessness. And it leads them into utter confusion. That's the word that Luke says in 
Interestingly, the word that Luke uses here of confusion is the same Greek word in the Septuagint used in Genesis chapter 11, and that is speaking of the Tower of Babel, when they were confused in their words by the Lord due to their godless worship and desires. We are controlled by godlessness, and you see that with Demetrius. You see that with these people. And yet there's a second point here, and that is challenged by godliness. We turn our attention to what it means to be challenged by godliness. Have you asked the question yet? What has Paul done that is so threatening? It's a good question. And did you know, you can't find the answer from Paul in our text this morning. This riot that is taking place, do you see what is missing? What is silent? Or better yet, who is silent? It's Paul. He's not saying anything. This is all being stirred up by Demetrius. Paul is silent. These people who have been filled with anger rush into the theater. Now, they're not talking about a movie theater. They're talking about an amphitheater. They're talking about a, a, a coliseum, something that's holding 25,000 people. You know, Ephesus is known to be the largest restored city in, in, in antiquity. You can still visit this amphitheater today. Events actually still take place here. And the crowds are in there. And Luke says they are totally confused. They drag Gaius and Aristarchus. Those are companions of Paul. We do read from Luke that Paul has a desire to want to go in, but, but is counseled by disciples and Asiarchs. Those are people who are not Christians, but they're wealthy. They're influential people. They have befriended Paul and his ministry at Ephesus. And Paul is silent. You know, John Calvin has an interesting perspective on this, and I tend to agree with him. He says that if Paul would have been permitted to go in, he would have said something. He would have argued. Things would have gotten worse. And therefore, a providence of God overruling the desires of man, even Paul spared his life and perhaps many others. You get a confused mob of people who Luke says, some are crying out one thing, others yet another, and most don't even know why they are there. And you can imagine it. They're all angry, and someone is saying, I'm mad because Paul is threatening my prophet. I'm losing money. I'm mad because I love Artemis. I'm mad because I love Ephesus. And I'm mad because you guys all keep yelling. We have a Colosseum, a theater of 25,000 people in utter confusion. And what has Paul done that has turned this city into a riot? And the answer is he has preached and taught the kingdom of God for a period of two years. He has been doing Bible study after Bible study, worship after worship, prayer and devotion after prayer and devotion fellowship after fellowship. He's been doing it for two years. When the Word of God comes in and works, it changes all of who you are.
It's that powerful image that Isaiah gives to us in chapter 55. We tend to think about its beginning verses where your thoughts aren't my thoughts. Your ways are higher than my ways. That's true and that's good. And then we think about how the Word of God goes out and it accomplishes its purpose. It doesn't return void. That is true. But the imagery that Isaiah captures at the end captures this so much better. What does he say? Well, he says the thorn bush and the briar. The thorn bush turns into a cypress and the briar turns into a myrtle. Now, I'm not any good at gardening, but you can understand that 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 doesn't make sense. When rain and snow hit on a thorn bush, you're not going to get a cypress. Or if it hits on a briar, you're not going to get a myrtle. What is What is Isaiah saying? He's saying the Word of God entirely changes you. It makes you altogether new. You have a new heart, a new identity. It doesn't just open the eyes of the blind. They drop everything to follow Jesus. Turning to Christ meant turning from everything else. It was creating different pleasures, different patterns of thinking and living, different practices. You remember back in Acts chapter 19 that there was a book burning, a voluntary book burning, outlining and demonstrating their repentance and their confession of sin. And so Luke in verse 23 says, there's no little disturbance concerning the way the gospel has changed them. It's interrupted and disturbed them. And the presence of the gospel is at work. And and when it works in the lives of people, it begins to work through their lives, and it has an effect. You know, we love Isaiah 29.11. It's on every Christian poster and trinket you can have. It's the context when the people of God, they're in exile and they're told to set up shop they're going to be there for a little while and they need to seek the peace and prosperity of the city but what does that mean it doesn't it doesn't mean being passive to sin and permissive of idolatry it isn't compromising truth for cultural acceptance it is bringing truth to bear on your life and sharing it with others And these new believers in Ephesus, they lived different because they were different. Is that how others see us when they look at our life? And let's not make an excuse for Ephesus. It wasn't some good southern Christian city. It was a cultural city. It would be a a cultural hotspot. You would want to go there. It had a thriving business district. You'd want to shop there, get coffee, go on a date. And Paul is preaching to the people and the gospel is changing them. The Jews put forth Alexander to speak. We don't know much about him. We don't even know what he was going to say. He didn't get a chance to speak. Because as he tried to motion, they, for two hours, began to chant again, Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. And it's not until the town clerk quiets the crowd. And did you hear what he says? When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. 
For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. He says the reputation of Artemis is fine. These Christians, they can't change that. They're not sacrilegious or blasphemers. Now, either he means, as he's trying to quiet the crowd, we don't have witnesses who can testify with hard evidence that this is something that they have said, or in fact, this town clerk is quite ignorant of the implications of Paul's preaching of the gospel. It would mean Demetrius, although wrong in his worship, is right with what the gospel claims. And so he tells the crowd, Demetrius can file charges in court if he wants. But he has put us in danger, not these. And when he's talking about danger, it's because Ephesus enjoyed a certain amount of freedom from Rome. And this kind of demonstration, this gathering of people would have been seen as a rebellious attempt against Rome and they would have lost that freedom. And so do you see what he says? Demetrius has put us in danger, not these Christians. Imagine that. You have a non-Christian inciting the crowds and another non-Christian confronting, saying, guys, let's be real. The problem isn't the Christians. It's us. We have acted lawlessly. We are jeopardizing our freedoms. We could be seen as rebellious. Now, what do you make of all of this? The gospel, it challenges us. We're challenged by godliness, and and, and I think it does so in two ways. The first is, is truth. Truth divides. The gospel being preached boldly and accurately, it will always cause trouble. It's because truth has no company with falsehood. When I was doing college ministry back in Columbia, I was a part of an organization on the campus. That's how we were able to meet on the campus. I was known as a chaplain. They called us religious workers, and we would have these meetings. And I must tell you, it was possibly the darkest and most difficult context I ever found myself in on that campus. This is a group of people covering all the denominations and religions represented on the campus. And when we would come together and meet, there were some rules. We were never allowed to talk about Jesus or God because we did not even agree that there was a God or a Jesus. Anytime there is truth, it divides because it cannot live in the presence of falsehood. If we embrace the God of the Bible, it will bring us into conflict with the world and even sometimes with ourself. It divides and it is a good thing because truth cares about people. Because truth, according to John and John 14, is Jesus, and Jesus cares about people. Truth divides us, and secondly, it also transforms us. The Christians here in Acts chapter 19 are the best citizens. 
If you were to ask Paul what to do in our country, if, if Paul were here today and he was taking a, a, a look at our culture, our country, at the status of how things are, and you were to say, what policy do we need to develop? How should we think politically? What's your political stance? I think Paul would say, what kind of crazy question is that? And I don't think he means by that that politics aren't important. But politics don't create lasting change. The gospel does. And therefore, we want to be a church and a people who preach the gospel over and over and over again. That the gospel coming in us and working in and through us would lead us to a, a love for the Word of God. That in every activity, it would be our greatest longing to follow Christ and live like Christ. Because those who have the gospel have been freed from the kingdom of darkness, from the control of godlessness, and have every reason to live different and therefore worship different. Might we be a church that is challenged by godliness and therefore challenges others in humility and in love by preaching the gospel and being faithful followers of the way. Let me pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we thank You that we have Your Word. And Your Word is truth. Jesus prayed for us in that. Sanctify us by Your truth. Your Word is truth. And we ask, O Lord, that You would refine us, purify us, Make us to love Your Word and therefore have it applied to our life that we might live different, that we might put to death the idols of our hearts and the idols of this world, that we might in fact be challenged in our understanding of the Gospel and of godliness. We pray for people perhaps who are listening, that those who are controlled by godlessness, that You might break such chains, freeing them, from the bondage of sin and bringing them into the bondage of righteousness, being found in Christ Jesus, and therefore loving truth and truth transforming us, and therefore seeking the peace and prosperity, not merely of our community, but of all creation, in which you are rightly to be worshipped. And so we pray, O Lord, help us to be faithful followers of the way, that it would be our life that challenges others because of our godliness. We pray in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.